All right, so happy Super Bowl Sunday. I'm guessing like if I asked who's watching the game, probably almost everybody everybody would raise their hand, right? So no, maybe not. Okay, I'm watching the game. Not about everybody else. Um, who do you guys think's gonna win? I'm not gonna say who I'm going for, so I don't exacerbate this little conflict. <laughs> so I'm gonna mention Tom Brady today, and you'll you'll see. I'm gonna mention Tom Brady today. Um, I'm rooting for Andy Reid more than anything. So as an Eagles fan, um, and as a guy who never won with the Eagles, I'm just kind of rooting for Andy Reid. So go Andy Reid. So sorry if you're a Niners fan. Um, all right, so we're in James right now um, for a little while, and. I'm covering James 2, 14 to 26. By the way, if you don't know me, I'm Nielsen. I'm the next generation pastor, which is like basically a fancy way of saying a youth pastor, but with lots of different ages outside of just youth. So um, if you don't know me, that's who I am. I usually wear a beanie, not this morning, just so I don't offend anybody. Um, trying to be careful about that kind of thing. Um, so today, if I had to call this, give it a title, I would call it this and that, which sounds kind of weird. But um, you'll recognize the passage and then maybe know why I call it that as we get into it. Uh, so after I picked this week to preach, um, without really thinking too much about the passage I was getting, I looked at it again. And I'm like, oh, no, why did I have to get this one? Like, why did I pick this one? This is probably one of the hardest parts of James for me personally, and maybe in like all of the New Testament. I'm like, oh, this is like a little bit above my pay grade. I'm like, they should pay me more just to preach this one. Um, so um, this is a good one. This is a tough one. It's, it's important, though. It's here for a reason. We're going to talk about it. Um, it might make some of us a little bit uncomfortable, but that's a good thing. It's going to push us, right? So James 2, 14 to 26. I'm going to read from that, and then we'll dive into it. So, this is the infamous faith in works or faith in deeds passage in James. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, so you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Some of you might be cringing at the moment. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Oh, that's a good one. All right, so cereal without milk. Start this off great. Toast without butter or jam or Vegemite, depending if you're from the, the Pacific somewhere. Some of you don't even know what Vegemite is. It's fine. Go to New Zealand and Australia. Mornings without coffee, worst thing ever. 
do not be around me. Breweries without beer, what's the point? Skis or snowboards without snow. Backcountry skis without skins. Don't do backcountry without skins. It's, it's awful. Um, avalanche beacon without batteries. It's pointless, right? What's the point of that? A bike without wheels. Mountain and meadow would be terrible with a bike without wheels. Um, big sky without winter or summer if you're that kind of person. A car without fuel. An engine without oil. Huh. And the Super Bowl without Tom Brady. Whoops. <laughs> That's actually a joke, obviously. So, turns out there can be a Super Bowl without Tom Brady. Thank the Lord. Um, and this is my first like ever prop during a sermon here. A guitar without strings. What is the point of a guitar without strings? What can you really do with it? You could probably hit someone with it or like bash someone over the head. Um, you could do like, air guitar stuff. But what is really the point of a guitar without strings, right? You can't really have one without the other. You can't really have this without that. A guitar without strings, right? It's pointless. Kind of like faith without some action and works and fruit behind it, right? Uh, and I'll come back to this. So I drove um, a while back a $500 Saturn around um, for a few years. Um, best price ever on a car that runs, right? And the thing was pretty good except for two windows that didn't really work. It was like the front driver's side didn't work, which is a bummer on a nice day when you want your window down and then one of the back ones. Um, and uh, aside from that, just had to be diligent about um, checking the oil a lot because it used a lot of oil. And I was really good at that for a long time until I think one day um, the check engine light came on and there was this weird vibration in the engine. I was like, uh-oh. It's like, I think I finally let it go too long. I did not check the oil recently, and I think, I think it finally happened. I knew it was going to happen at some point. I would get lazy, and it kind of just died on me. I forgot to check the oil, and um, an engine without oil does not work very well. Um, so I wasn't that bummed. I was kind of ready for a different car. Turns out the next car had like the same problem. Didn't, didn't score there. But um, an engine without oil, my point being, right, it's a little bit like faith without works or fruit or action, right? It's, it doesn't work that well together. You can't have one without the other. You need both. You need this and that. Um, so we're going to dive into that. And just as a little reminder about this book and who wrote it and what it's about, it's, it was written um, by James, the brother of Jesus. You could say half-brother of Jesus. Um, written mostly to the diaspora or the scattered Jewish Christians outside of their homeland of Palestine. Um, many were probably living in conditions of persecution and poverty. They're probably struggling a little bit in where they're at outside their homeland. Um, and it's addressing some social and spiritual conflict that's happening within these scattered Jewish house churches. Um, and James is really interested in moving his listeners or readers from this mere belief um, and a certain kind of faith to a worshipful fruit-bearing faith. That's kind of the point, especially of this passage that I'm going to talk about. So that's what's going on behind the scenes there, just to catch us up. So I have a beginning question to start with as we talk about this. The beginning question would be, some of you are asking this right now as you look at this passage, but isn't it faith alone? Who's thinking that maybe right now as we read this passage? Isn't it faith alone? Isn't that what it's about? Isn't it faith alone? Um, you don't have to raise your hand so no one looks at you weird. Um, but um, I, ha- I ask that question when I read this passage, right? Isn't it faith alone? What- what's James saying? So I just want to give some of you who maybe will struggle with this a little bit, um, give you a little bit of a pass. Because if this book makes you a little uncomfortable, if this passage makes you a little uncomfortable and confused, then guess what? You are not alone at all in feeling that way. 
Um, you're in really good company, because guess what? This guy named Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the forerunner of the Protestant Reformation, some of you have heard of him probably, really big guy in the Reformation, was, it was a big deal. Um, he had kind of the same reaction towards this whole book. Um, he even went as far as to say, um, therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw, Woo. compared to these others, for his nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Like, whoa, Martin Luther, calm down, dude. That's a pretty harsh statement. That's a pretty harsh statement. Um, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. But some of you might be asking, um, didn't Paul say in Ephesians 2, as some of you really smart people out there are asking, didn't Paul say, it's by grace you've been saved through faith? This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Whoa, what's going on there? But Paul's not finished. Right after that, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There's a little bit of a follow-up there, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So maybe they're really not that contradictory, right? When you really look at it, they work really well together, right? Like a guitar with strings, they work really well together. Because um, sometimes, like we can be honest, the Bible seems like it's full of some contradictory statements, right? There's, there's, some, there's some reality to that. But maybe it might be better to say they're full of a lot of complementarian statements, which I think Paul and James are very complementarian in the way that they're approaching this idea of salvation and faith and works. We have to learn to embrace these nuances and these particulars, right, of these different authors and books and audiences, all these different contexts, such as Paul and James are doing, right? We have to learn to embrace that as we dive into this, this, hard, this hard stuff of the Bible. Um, and Paul, also along the line of what James is saying, says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Okay, so, okay, they're really not that different here. They're really saying kind of the same thing, right? So you can be at ease, you're in good company, it's okay if this is hard, if it's a little confusing, but Paul and James are really kind of on the same page here when you look at it. So I just want to get that out of the way as we start. Um, so I'm not going to read back through the passages at all, but um, starting back at the beginning in verse 14, this is kind of what I think it's saying. The works and the actions are the evidence or the fruit of what already exists in the heart through faith. The works and the actions are the evidence or the fruit of what already exists in the heart through faith. So I think we need to remember, right, faith and forgiveness do come first. Works really should follow as an expression of that faith that already exists in the heart. It's not saying here that it's works first and then faith, that your works lead to salvation. It's saying that it's faith first and then works follow. Faith is leading to salvation and expressing itself in works. I think that's the proper order. We have to get that in the right order, right? So, of course, I think we all can agree we're not saved by good works. We do good works because we are saved, right? I think we can all agree on that. I'm just going to get real basic for a second. But again, um, there's this important tension here. You can't have one without the other. There needs to be both, right? That's going to be an automatic outflow of fruit and works if you have a true, genuine faith. I'm going to touch on that more later. You can't have one without the other. You can't have this without that. You can't have the guitar without the strings. The guitar without the strings is kind of pointless, just like faith without some action and fruit and works behind it, right? So it's like kind of James is kind of saying, James is like a, is a pretty... He's kind of a funny kind of 
pretty blunt tone in this whole book, right? He's saying, so you're saying you believe, do you? A little bit of sarcasm. Well, then show me the fruit. If you say you believe, show me something. That's kind of what he's saying, and that's okay. We need to hear that. And then jumping to verses 15 to 17, um, we remember, right, this is written in a specific context, right? This is mostly a context of persecution and poverty. Some of these people are really struggling, probably, in their everyday lives in these churches. And the works mentioned here, the example he gives to show these works like feeding and helping your brother or sister in need, um, these are tied to this daily, everyday life and circumstances. They're not this abstract, theoretical thing of like, oh, these lofty works. No, it's tied to the real, greedy, hard circumstances of the people who he's writing to, right? He's tying it to something real. The context is everything here. They're not abstract works. They're real and they're greedy. They have... You know, you have to get your hands dirty. They're going to cost you something. He's speaking into this specific situation, right? He's speaking into their world. He's speaking their language of what they're struggling with. So, again, he's, he's saying if you say you believe, then it really should be seen in how you're treating each other and taking care of one another, right? It should really show up in the way that you're loving your neighbor, helping your brother or sister, right? He's tying it to some really everyday gritty circumstances. It's... Compassion in action. I'm going to read this short quote that talks about this. Every time the Gospels mention that Jesus was moved with the deepest emotions or felt sorry for people, it led to his doing something. Physical or inner healing, deliverance or exorcism, feeding the hungry crowds or praying for others. The Good Samaritan was commended precisely because he acted. The priests and the Levite paragons of Jewish virtue flunked the test because they didn't do anything. Which of these, in your opinion, was neighbor to the man who fell in with the robbers? The answer came, the one who treated him with compassion. Jesus said to them, then go and do the same. Compassion in action. And then verses 20 to 25, um, the examples he uses would have been really, really familiar to a Jewish audience, right? They would have really known what he's talking about. He's speaking their language. He uses the stories of Abraham and Rahab to prove his point, right? Abraham's faith was made plain, again, in his greedy, real-life obedience when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, right? This was an act of worship, right? And I'm going to get back to the act of worship later. Rahab, the prostitute's faith, was made plain in her dangerous act of helping these spies in Jericho, right? Basically, her enemies. Again, this was an act of obedience. It was an act of worship, and we'll get to that later. So, the beginning question that we might be asking, isn't it faith alone? The answer, of course, is still yes, but it's faith that expresses itself in works and actions, and it bears some fruit. So, maybe, um, having covered the beginning question, we can talk about another one. And um, I would call it maybe even the better question than the first one. So, what kind of faith are we talking about here? So, isn't it faith alone? Yes, the better question might be, what kind of faith? And this is a really important thing that James, I think, is hitting on here. So again, isn't it faith alone? Yes, it's faith alone. Will genuine faith bear genuine fruit? Yes, it will. I think he's saying that apart from fruit, um, that faith apart from fruit is really no genuine faith at all. So yes, yes, yes. The answer is still yes. It's faith alone, but faith that expresses itself in action. So let's move on from that idea. So the question here is what kind of faith are we talking about? What kind of faith is James talking about? So maybe James is being a little clever here. I think he might be kind of comparing and contrasting two different kinds of faith and belief or two different ways of believing and having faith. 
That's, that's kind of what I see him doing here. So remember, um, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And in verses 18 to 19, he mentions something interesting that a Jewish audience would understand very well. It would all be familiar with. He mentions this, this Jewish prayer, right? And I'm going to probably butcher this. Jad, you can tell me if I'm saying it wrong. The, the Shema Yisrael. In Deuteronomy 6, right? They all knew this. This was a prayer they prayed every day. This is a prayer that was foundational to their faith as Jews. So James mentioned this, and it says, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He alludes to that in, this, in these two verses. So it's almost like James is saying to this Jewish audience, Well, fine, you believe this. Good for you. Like, that's great. Guess what? Even the demons believe the same thing that you're praying, right? The demons believe that. And they tremble at it. So he's getting at something here, really important for this audience. So listen closely. This is really what I want to land on when I talk about this. Here's what's important. Are the demons changed by that belief? They believe the same thing as the Jews. Are the demons changed by that belief? Hopefully we all probably can answer no, right? No, not really. Do they worship because of that belief? It's not enough to change them. It's not enough to cause them to worship, right? That's the really important question that James is asking here. So then we can take one step further and say, so are we changed by this belief? Do we worship because we believe this? That's the really important question that James is asking here. There is the difference, right, between these two different kinds of faith and belief that he's getting at. So one kind of faith is just a statement of belief, right? Behold, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, Statement of belief. There's some words there. There's some good knowledge and information, all of which are true. But maybe it could be without worship and thus without any fruit. And the other kind of faith, the, the true, genuine faith that James is talking about, this intrinsically leads us to worship and to obey and to bear fruit. So again, the one kind of faith might just be Statement of beliefs, it might be words and knowledge, information, all of which are good, but maybe it doesn't lead to worship and thus it's without fruit. Again, the other kind of faith, this true, genuine, authentic faith, intrinsically leads us to worship. Because when, when we truly believe, we will truly worship and truly obey and bear fruit. So when I speak this for myself, I cannot be transformed or changed or bear any fruit unless I worship. My beliefs, my statements, my knowledge is not enough to bring transformation and worship, right? There has to be a little bit more than just what I say I believe. So this faith is rooted in an authentic encounter with God, with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. This produces an authentic transformation and a response of worship that bears fruit. So you can hopefully remember this next line if you remember nothing else today. I think God wants to take us from maybe a vague and personal informational faith that might just merely be verbal to an intimate, active, worshipful kind of faith that bears fruit. God wants to take us from a vague and personal informational faith to an intimate, active, worshipful faith that's fruit-bearing. That's really what I see um, James is uh, saying in this passage. And let's jump to probably the, one of the hardest verses in the whole, the whole passage. But again, it's really important. Oh, now I lost my place. Basically, the one where he says that faith alone is not enough, but also it involves works. I'm talking about salvation. That's in verse 24. And this one, yeah, this one's a little bit difficult for me. I look at it, I'm like, but I don't get it, Lord. It doesn't sound like what Paul says. It doesn't seem, 
exactly what Jesus said. But again, this is here for a reason. I really believe that. This is very important and it's here for a reason and it has something to say to us. And this is what that verse is telling me. The one about faith alone not being enough. That there has to be works. This tells me that mere intellectual agreement with a set of statements and beliefs and propositions, it's not the same thing as a living, intimate, passionate, fruit-bearing relationship with Jesus Christ. They are not the same thing, right? One does not equal the other. Again, it tells me that mere intellectual agreement with a set of statements and beliefs and propositions, words, it's not the same thing as a living, intimate, passionate fruit-bearing relationship with Jesus Christ. Which is a little scary if you're religious. Like myself, growing up that way, and knowing all the right things, and all the right words, all the right information, that does not mean I have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. That should be a little humbling, and like really makes me look at my heart and be like, man, I know a lot of the great information, but I don't really know if it actually changes me. That's a bit of a scary thing to look at and ask yourself. But this is why this verse is so important, right? It's ask, making us ask some really hard questions about ourselves. James is talking about a faith that doesn't just say something, but it actually shows something. But to take the pressure off here, I think the amazing thing about following Jesus is that when it's genuine, you know, when we are surrendered, when we're, when we're repentant, when we choose to follow Jesus, um, I don't think we have to try or work all that hard to bear the good fruit, right? Thank God, because I could never do it if it was all up to me, right? Because Jesus himself alludes to this, if we are the branches of a good tree, the branches connected to the vine that is Jesus, we're going to bear good fruit. It's all about who you're connected to. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you spend time with Jesus? Are you surrendered? If that is your heart posture, you're going to bear good fruit because you can't help but bear fruit because you're connected to the vine, right? That's what's important here. So don't put pressure on yourself. Know that if you're connected to Jesus, you're going to bear good fruit. And then to the last verse about the body. Has anyone ever seen a body lying in an open casket at a memorial service or a funeral, right? Probably a lot of us. It's kind of strange and unnerving, isn't it, to see a physical body without any life or spirit, right? It's really strange. Um, the body's there, but the spirit isn't. There's no life. It's just a body. It's just a shell. A body without a spirit is lifeless. So I think that image, I think that's what dead, dispassionate religion looks like. You have a body, but there's no life, there's no breath, there's no spirit. I do not want to be a dead body in my faith. You know what I mean? This is kind of what faith without works looks like. It's just the body, but there's really nothing happening. You're not doing anything. There's no life there. I do not want to be that corpse in my faith. So it's interesting how um, James compares these two, right? It's like opposite of what you'd expect because he says... He compares the image of the body to faith, right? The faith almost like being the shell, right? The body. And then he uses, um, compares the spirit to works, right? So it's interesting. You would think it'd be flip-flopped. So it's like he's saying our works are the spirit or the life, right? Of this body, the shell, which is our faith. He's like, you need the works to bring the life, to bring the beating heart, to bring the spirit to the body. I'm going to have to think about that in a little bit because that is not how I would have expected him to write about it. I would have expected him to say, oh, well, the spirit, you know, is tied the other way around. The body, you know, the spirit would be um, the works and the body, or the body would be our works and the spirit would be our faith, right? It's actually opposite, right? So think about that a little bit. That's how important the works are here. 
So again, it's like a, a guitar without strings, like a body without a spirit. Those two, I think, really help describe what, what um, just a, a verbal kind of dead informational faith might look like apart from a living, breathing, active faith. The guitar is just an instrument without any music. It's just an object without any use or beauty if it doesn't have strings. And I think that's the same for our faith without any sort of action or works. So let's wrap this up here. So let's bring it back to Jesus. Um, this is all about fixing our eyes on Jesus because it says in Hebrews 12 that he is the pioneer, the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith, right? Our faith can only begin, can only happen in Jesus in the first place, right? It has to start there. Jesus came because religion and law, they, they weren't enough. Works weren't enough. There was no Israelite or man or woman. There is none now that can fulfill the commands that were required of them that can do well enough to get to God on their own, it's impossible. It's never been that way. It never will be that way. Works, works could never save anyone, and there's still not enough to save anyone. So we have to always go back to that and remember that. It's the gospel, right? So I think when it's all said and done, when we look at this and we read through this, um, there's this faith that's tied to a real encounter with Jesus, right? It's tied to a real encounter, a real relationship with Jesus. And again, you've heard me say it before, this, this encounter leads to a response, right? An authentic count, encounter leads to an authentic response of obedience and worship. Um, again, like what other response is there if we really know what we've been shown by Jesus, right? When we really know what he's done for us, that he's has given us this opportunity that he has been the origin of our faith, that he's done all the work for us. What other response is there but obedience and worship, right? That's always what it comes back to for me in all of this. And the cool thing about Jesus is that he, he ha we have this guy who lived and breathed and walked with us, who got his hands dirty, who ate and slept and got, maybe even felt sickness. Like he lived in this tension of faith and works, right? We have the perfect example of a man who lived in the tension of faith and works, right? We have someone who showed us how to do that, right? He didn't get stuck on either side, right? Because there's the one side of the striving, the burning yourself out, trying to be good enough. Jesus didn't worry about that because he knew who he was. He knew what he believed. He knew who his father was. He did not have to lean or get stuck in that side. And there's also the other side of succumbing to the, to the cheap grace, which just leads to apathy and indifference towards our lifestyle, towards God. There's no obedience. There's no action. He didn't get stuck in either side because he knew exactly what he believed. He knew who he followed. He knew who his father was. And his life was a response of love and gratitude towards his father. He didn't have to get stuck in either side. And we don't have to either. Right? That's, Jesus shows us how to live in that tension that is here with faith and works. Because if you receive his free gift, if you receive Jesus, if you know and you follow him, you're going to bear good fruit. That's as simple as that. And you're going to look like the one you follow. So be careful what you're following. You're going to look like the one you're following. So I think God wants to say something, God wants to say something to a few of us today concerning this, right, this idea. So I think for some of us, I really felt this strongly this week. The first kind of faith has brought us this far. It's brought us to a good place. It's worked up to this point of your life, maybe. There's the knowledge. There's the information. 
There's the verbal assent. There's the right beliefs. Those are all really good things. That's a great place to start. And I think maybe the Father desires to bring some of us to the next part of the journey into a new kind of faith, right? I think that's what God wants for some people in here, and for myself included. I think he wants to take us from informational faith to a worshipful faith. I really think that somebody maybe in here needs to hear that. He wants to take some of us from a very informational faith to a really relational and worshipful kind of faith. Some of us are ready to move, I think, to the next part of that faith journey. And I think the Father says, and I was thinking about this this week, I really felt like God gave this to me, you know, I was almost like tearing up, I was like, whoa, this is really cool. It's like the Father isn't even displeased that you have the first kind without the second kind. It's like he's saying, I love that you believe, I love that you believe, that you know the right things, that you believe the right things, and then he says, now, just worship me, worship me, worship me. I love that you believe, but now I want you to worship. There's more. He's like, I love that you know the right things. I love that you have that information. But now I want you to look at me. I want you to turn to me. I want you to gaze upon me. There's something that goes beyond just the information and the knowledge. There's this sense of relationship, of worship, of looking at Jesus, not at the rules, not at the commandments, not at the religion or the legalism. Like we take our eyes from all the, the written rules and it's like, no, it's really all about this. The rules aren't meant to just be looked at here. They're meant to take your eyes and and turn them to Jesus. Like, that's what God wants from us. He wants the worship and the response, not just the information. You know, who, who, who in a relationship just wants someone to know the right information about them? You want the relationship, the love, right? That's what you want from somebody. That's what God wants from us. So I think that's for somebody in here today. And um, I'll invite the worship team back up. Let's, let's, in all of this talk about faith and works, turn our eyes back to Jesus, right? Turn our eyes back to Jesus. That's what matters. It's his work. It's not, it's not your work. It's always been his work. He's the origin and the author of your salvation and your freedom, right? That's it. It's him. You don't have any part in terms of what you can do to bring yourself to that. God's brought you to that. And now all he's asking is for relationship, for response, for obedience, and for worship, right? So let's take ourselves from the information to the worship and turn our eyes to Jesus right now. So let, let's pray as we sing this last song. Lord, you've really spoken to me through this, God, a lot. Um, there's something about this idea, Lord, that... Lord, you want so much to take us from information to worship. I cannot, I cannot get away from that, that thought, Lord, or this idea, this sense that, Lord, there's just... Information, Lord, is, is only the first half, God. There's just something about moving from information and knowledge and just a mere belief in something and information and a historical fact to a worshiping kind of relational faith, God. That's really what you want from us, God. I just pray that for whoever in here needs to move from one to the next right now, God, I just pray that you would show up, that, that what was just some words and some verses and some beliefs all of a sudden would just turn into this person this spirit, this connection with God that they've never known before. And that it would, it would blow them away, the difference, God. The change, the transformation that takes place when we move from one 
to the next. So Lord, I, I don't think it's just enough to know and believe and say the right things, Lord. I want more than that, God. You want our worship, God, and we want to worship, Lord. You want us to gaze on you, God, and we want to gaze on you, Lord. We don't want to just know the information, God. We want to know you, Father. We want the kind of faith that doesn't just say, but, but does, Lord, and loves God and is given back to you, God. So, Lord, we turn our eyes on you, Jesus, Lord. I can't be good enough to meet the requirements of your law and your perfection, Lord, but I thank you, Jesus, that you've done it for me. God, and I live in that place that my faith and my works is based in the, in the reality of what Jesus has done for me, God. That's where I live out my faith and my works, God. So, Lord, bring us to that place of worship, God, and worshipful obedience today, Lord. In your name, amen.